Uh, so welcome to Crossing Creation number three. And um, so far, the story is uh, that we, we're we looking at penal substitution and looking for a better way to look at it. We are. Um, so we began uh, by, by taking the gospel story back to Genesis 1 rather than Genesis 3 and ask ourselves if we begin the gospel in Genesis 1 with creation ex nihilo, what would be the problem for which the cross is the solution? Rather a different question than beginning in Genesis 3 with the fall. Where, um, and uh, what we talked about is that historically there's probably been a diversion between the creationist view of the gospel and a more penal view of the gospel. Uh, which we characterised as cross and creation. And um, efforts to bring them together have not been that successful. And I think last time I talked about yes. the 19th century um, and uh, in the history of, of the ev evangelicalism in, in England in the 19th century, the first half of the 19th century, the old evangelicals emphasised the cross but then there was a move away from that towards the incarnation. Yeah. And um, that's actually apparently when Christmas became as widely celebrated. Apparently yeah. it was not as widely celebrated yeah. as Easter. Um, so, But the ability to bring the two together, is it was always difficult for people. So that's what we've talked about. Um, and uh, in other words, our goal would be to put the cross and creation together. together. Now, um, and we've talked about the problems with the traditional penal substitution atonement. You've got a particular angle on that, which is your story, different to my story. Yeah. Uh, your background. Do you want to just explain that? Sure. So I, I alluded to this in the, in the first talk we did, and, and people come to atonement theories from, from different trajectories. I grew up uh, in a church that was very, very reformed. You know, wasn't Presbyterian, but it was Presbyterian reformed sort of style, which which um, I grew up with something called limited atonement, which was that who did Christ die for? That's part of the tulip. Part it is part of the tulip, yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I, hardcore Calvinism. It was pretty hardcore, yeah, defensive posture. Yeah, I, I, learned, I learned tulip jokes that people think each other. So, yeah, that's, that was the background. Um, and limited atonement is, means uh, Christ only died for the elect. So in Sunday school, you know, as children, you'd be asked, who did Christ die for? And you'd say everybody, and you'd no, but he just died for the elect. So not, not many people come from that sort of background. And it, it's problematic um, because as soon, as soon as you go down that path, you're sort of saying God predestined some for eternity, and some were predestined for hell, which is called double. Double. And when you read your Bible, it, it does that. That doesn't pop out. Like it, it it's it's difficult. And uh, one of the reasons I liked Anglicans more than Presbyterians and Evangelicals more than Reformed was there was more of a um, epistemic humility, where Evangelicals wouldn't go that far. You know, Anglicans wouldn't go that. Far. They'd say, "Yeah, we'll leave that unknown." Uh, we can see how the logic drives you there. Um, and the nasty question you would ask somebody who is evangelical or Anglican is, are there 
people in hell for whom Christ died. And so the problem, when, when, when you want to soften, you know, move away from that limited atonement, but the problem for you is how do you keep the death of Christ elevated? Because all of a sudden you're saying Christ's death was not sufficient to do what we thought it was supposed to do. There's, there's Christ's death and something else. And so that becomes a bit of an anathema. Uh, so when I went to college, that was that was probably the big issue I wanted to try to resolve. Everybody else, um, yeah, you assume that somebody's thought that through and realised there were lots of atonement theories. Like it, it, lots of people were trying to grapple with those ideas of how do you how do you keep the death of Christ high and and still not have a, a limited atonement. So that's that's the background uh, that that I came from, and that it does become important. Like I think I I went in thinking this is just an idea and you can't do any damage thinking about this idea. Nothing can go wrong, except when when you've got a... Now, I must say, all, all the people in Tamworth from a reform background were, were the most lovely people you'd ever meet. But there's a logic that says we should be able to imitate God. And when you've got a God who is has retributive justice rather than... Uh, restorative justice, then that's the God you're supposed to imitate. Uh, it, it does it does send you a on a different uh, direction when you've got a different doctrine of God. Well, I think that's a really critical issue behind this, which is the picture. Your, your doctrine will, will imply a picture of Absolutely. God, and that picture of God will become very influential in your life, probably even at a subconscious level. Yeah. Um, uh, um, yeah, the, the tulip, the five points of tulip were, of course, created out of the Synod of Dort yep. in 1618 and 1619, and the less you know about that, the better. Um, <laughs> uh, because they essentially killed their opponents um, or, or sent them to life imprisonment. Um, which, uh, the sponsor of the... So the, the there was the... Reformed group who who developed Tulip at mm -hmm. the Synod of Dort, the five points, that's where they came out. Um, their opponents were called Remonstrants, who were actually just like modern evangelicals. Yeah. They, they they were just anyone, <clears throat> anyone in Sydney Anglicanism or Baptist would be a remonstrant. They were a minority. They were. Um, so they were defeated. Um, and they lost badly. And they lost badly. And of course, this was the Dutch, you know, there's no kind of grey, just black and white. <laughs> and um uh, it, was, it was a European-wide conference. They had people from every country. But the, behind both camps, there was a political sponsor. And there were two guys who were running Holland. Um, uh, the sort of the prince who was the son of William of Orange. Oh, really? And his mentor, whose name I can't pronounce, a long one starting <laughs> with O. And, and that... And, and he was like the prime minister or whatever, and he had a um, uh, a philosophical tutor called Grotius. Oh yeah. And yeah. both of those guys, it's very interesting. They were politicians who believed they were Christians, but they believed in tolerance. They believed in the separation of church and state, and so they were part of the liberal thinking side. It's just very interesting how your whatever your picture of God is will lead into actions. So. The, and, um, and vice versa. I, I think Pascal said um, God created man in his image and man's been returning the favour ever since. Well, I, yeah, I, I think that's true, but I'm, I'm actually going, go, I'm not entirely in, 
I think it's much stronger that whatever system you believe yeah. has a much bigger influence on than you realise. Anyway, the short story is that uh, several weeks after the creation of Tulip, therefore the victory of the reforms, um, the Prime Minister guy was executed Ooh. and Grotius was sentenced yeah. to life imprisonment. Yeah. That's what you get for not being a five-point Calvinist. Anyway, well, it was Calvinists don't talk about that very much, but no, they don't think about it. And I must say, the people I know... They weren't that bad? No, they, weren't, they were lovely. And that, that's that's part why it became but difficult, because at a personal level, you know these lovely people, and you're thinking, no, the, the logic of your position drives you to this, but they don't go there. Yeah, but what I embrace would be perhaps not the, the i think the theological problem becomes a pastoral problem absolutely absolutely and i sat through a bible study for our church um last oh, three or four nights ago with you know a group of other christians you know yeah. mature people very well educated uh doing romans and frankly they were all grappling with inner demons and a sense of guilt i was the only one who felt free <laughs> uh, mind you, you know, of course I did say something, but um, the, whatever your theology is starts to impact your view of who God is and that starts to work at your subconscious, which mm. is why why these things are important. And um, anyway, last week, last week I thought um, we, we, what we did was we took some of the big words yep. and tried to reframe them. Um, and I think... Uh, you led us that in a very, very interesting way. Um, I think the main one was around sin, the way that you recharacterize sin, i.e., how you do it in Genesis three, hmm. uh, which I, I had, I've heard things like, "It's the sin of pride yeah. or independence, and um, that's the source of all sin." You said, and I think that for most people, it's transgressing some moral code, yeah. undefined moral code. That's, that's what your, your systematic theology is. So if you bring down nearly any systematic theology from your, your bookshelf, that's what it will say about sin. Yeah, and that that's you your paradigm shift, which I then backed up with that Kierkegaard yep. story, but your paradigm shift I think was really significant. I mean, the Kierkegaard said sin is despair, Yeah, and you said something, you didn't use that language, but it's not believing God intends good for me. Yeah, which could be a way of saying I don't believe God's loving, I don't believe He's a father. Um, and um, it, it, I think that's very, very because that's all that really happens in Genesis three. Like, there's no sin word. Um, some people say there's a breach of a moral code, but when was He given the moral code? Some people say while they were walking in the garden together, God gave the moral code, but you know that's not in the text. So it's a big jump. So if you, if you just want to deal with what's in front of you in the text, the only thing you've really got is Adam got to a point where he didn't trust God intended good and he trusted somebody else. Yeah. So the reading of that story, obviously I don't think many of us would believe it's literal, like serpent speaking, but we think it is a paradigm to explain the human condition. It's yes. enormously powerful. Uh, it, that's pretty important. So I think you were, that was really helpful. Then the other big word we kind of stretched was the wrath. Yeah, wrath of God, and stretch that into a parent's love versus this yeah. um, could be indignation. Like indignation. It's, the word's just anger. Yeah. So you know, there's a semantic range, but it's a it's a translator's choice to to go that far to say it means wrath, uh, and that's what you, 
you've got this problem when you've when you're translating, you can't do it without bias. You've got you've got a view, you've got a theology, and it's very hard for you not to impose it on the on the translation. And no matter what word you choose, because poetry is my that's a my world. Um, that there are some words, not I mean, it's true of every word, but there are some big words, and they tend to be nouns that are like the tip of a huge iceberg. Yeah. Underneath them, there's just vast <laughs> layers of inchoate, inexpressed meaning. And this Roth one is, an, is a really big one. Mm-hmm. Um, if you So you could move it to indignation, but nonetheless, we all know that there's times in all of our lives when we're angry for good reason mm-hmm. and it's with good outcomes. So, so I think that was really good. Um, th- and then you did Faith, which, again, was powerful. You said it's not... An entry ticket to a relationship. It's it characterizes so relationships are characterized by the mutuality. Yeah. Which is you can define relationships in terms of faith or trust. In the if if you're sitting and just going through it, you know, you 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 trust people's character and you trust their competency and you trust their commitment to you. And so there's three measures of of trust that you can use. So there might be um, millions of people in the world who can do your accounting for you, but there might only be a few of the sort of character that you'd like to work with. There might be even fewer that are competent to the degree you want, and but there's probably only one that's committed to doing your accounting. You know, it's it's actually not a ma- bad measure to talk about. Well, I think trust is a two-way street, isn't it? I mean, because that that's actually probably what forges a relationship. So that that's very powerful when you think mm-hmm. about us and God. Now, the, the other big word uh, which we have talked about is the word we want to start with, which is dominion, yeah. uh, because that's the Genesis 1 word, that the situation, uh, what, what when we go back to Genesis 1, the, yeah. si- the situation we've got is uh, the role of humanity in the cosmos. Mm. Um, now, we coined the phrase um, mission failure. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that there'd been a mission failure. So going back to clarify the mission becomes important. Yeah. Um, and by the way, a lot, uh, since the last time I've read a fair bit of Tom Wright's book, uh, The Day the Revolution Began, and in many ways he's saying very similar things to what we'll be talking about tonight. Uh, dominions uh, could be a problematic word uh, because it can connote control, but let's just not worry about that for the moment. Mm. Um, and, and tonight we're going to take, we're going to work with that word because. What, we be, what we'll be saying is that the, if, if we had asked the question, okay, if we begin in Genesis 1 with creation, what's the problem? And if the problem is not transgression of a moral code, what is it? And what, what we'll be exploring is it was lost dominion. Yeah. Lost dominion. Um, so that, that word of dominion and the dominion of human beings in the cosmos is... Um, I think we just need to make a point at the outset that um, parts of the Bible develop that very aggressively. Absolutely. It's just good for people to know that. Um, I would say, I don't want to go into them now, but I'd say that the one book that develops it most extensively is the book of Hebrews mm. and particularly chapter two of the book of Hebrews yeah. um, where in chapter two, the book of Hebrews, which 
is is interesting because it's a, it's a, it's written to a Jewish perspective. You'd expect it to go into sin. It doesn't. It goes into Psalm eight yeah. and lost the lost dominion, dominion of humanity over the cosmos. That's that's how he sees uh, the problem. Um, so uh, we're going to look at two lenses, sort of yeah. top uh, top down and bottom up. Yeah. So I'm the top down guy <laughs> because I don't like details. I get in the way of a good idea. Absolutely. Um, so you call that a theological perspective. That's yeah. I want a better expression. And then the, the bottom up is more exegetical, which is yeah. what about this verse, this verse, and this mm. verse. So we'll have a, a bit of a go at both of them today. Yeah. And um, I just want to circle back to the the limited atonement problem mm -hmm. in that uh, often in theology, you, your position is about what you're not prepared to, to give up. And this is where dominion has been very much subordinated because we've had such a view of the sovereignty of God, particularly as reformed evangelicals, that, that we don't talk about our dominion. And it's almost, mm. it's an affront because we, we, we've got sort of the, the Greek mechanistic view that, that God's in control of everything. And that, and that, that rolls off the tongue. That, that's how it is. And that means that we're not. So part of the problem for people when they're talking about atonement theories um, is they we don't want to give up the idea of God's sovereignty, the, the idea that God might ha not have absolute control over ab absolutely everything is sort of anathema. And that's that's why limited atonement seems more attractive because the thing that they don't want to trade off is is this concept of the sovereignty of God. I think that is a really good point, um, a very important point, actually. And um, it's a point that I think opens the door for us yeah. because we're going to be looking at a view that that gives human beings a great deal more sovereignty, sovereignty. Yeah. Uh, than most people think. Yeah. And it seems that's God, in God's sovereignty, that's what he wants. This very diminished view that that evangelicalism and probably a lot of Christianity has yeah. has fostered is, as you as you said, we're, we're reprobate and sinful and we can't do anything. Yeah. And I think that's a vast uh, lie. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems to be transgressing the purposes of God. But particularly, but you can see if, if you start your, your message, your Bible, your gospel at Genesis 3, mm -hmm. then you throw away all the dominion passages and you start saying, okay, people will say... Um, People in articles will write that we are no longer the image of God, and therefore we no longer have dominion because whatever the image of God is, we've we've marred it, we've destroyed it um, through sin. Which, which, when you think about it, that's a very we, we talk about metaphors, and people have made them very concrete all of a sudden. Where the, the image of God is much more about uh, role than ontology. Anyway, we're digressing, but that's. Well, I think that's an important point. Um, role, if, if I'm given a role yeah. um, by somebody else, absolutely, I carry their authority with me, with me into that role. Yeah. And if I was, for instance, appointed as the ambassador to a country on behalf of Australia, and this is a concept we'll get into, which I think is quite important. And, and these th this metaphor that I'm about to develop is a political metaphor, but that's very biblical. A lot of the Bible has political metaphors. If I become the ambassador to the United States, my role to some extent, or if I'm negotiating a deal on behalf of my country, I'm a plenipotentiary. 
which means my word goes for the entire 20 million people. Yeah. And I'm given that. It's not that I'm more important than 20 million people. It's just my role has been yeah. given to me. So what you're saying is if Genesis 1 says God has given us a role, then the power of that role and the extent of that role is not something we're talking we're not talking about our worthiness we're talking no about no that's right the mission we've yeah, been yeah. given by the creator it's got nothing to do with worthiness yeah which is that's, that's it's, a, it's a relief it's got to do with the worthiness of the person who gives you the task yeah because it's it, it belongs to them yeah right? correct and and of course what we end up with is a a much huger view of god and you know a verse i've been thinking about a lot over the last little while through these talks but others as well is Paul uh, in Ephesians. And one of the points which Tom Wright makes in this book here, which I mean, he says so many things that resonate with me, but I think we've thought of ourselves before that he, 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 was, he was wondering that if the Reformation thought as much about Ephesians as they did about Romans and Galatians, it would have been very different. <laughs> yeah. But my point is this, uh, Ephesians is, of course, an, an epic book mm -hmm. which a lot of theologians and people think it's the high point of his thinking. What's the high point? What does he see as the, and he's talking to a group of Christians, what's his prayer for them? What, what's his, and you only pray for things that you haven't quite got yet. And his prayer is that you would know the amplitude, the height, the depth, the breadth of the love of God, which passes knowledge. I think we haven't taken that seriously mm. enough. It's shocking. As Kierkegaard says, it's shocking how much God loves mm. us and how important we are in his cosmos. Well, again, see, this is where part of my background that I referred to in the first uh, talk is that when, when we talk about the love of God, we immediately go to Romans and say, you know, we, we know God, Christ loved us because he died for us. And, and while that's important, and you could even say central, it's not the only thing, because uh, it, it seems to me that when when you're made in somebody's image, that that is that is love. Like there's however you want to word it, there, there's a commitment to us. And I, I think we've actually narrowed our understanding of what loving things God God does. So being made in his image. Um, well, I think, uh, I think I agree with you because in the gospel I grew up with, the love of God is because he died on the cross. That's for it. Sins. Yeah. Well, no, no, Paul doesn't say that in he Ephesians. Doesn't. In Ephesians, he doesn't begin there. He, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the anointed who has um, blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So the love begins before mm. the foundation of the world. It's not It's not a reaction to a problem. Yeah. Um, well, look, um, so with that opening... Um, and, yeah, that's at the opening. <laughs> dominion. Um, and, and if we take that word and stretch it, I'll, I'll begin with... Um, about five or six stretches that once you start with that word, you have to stretch other things. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, I'll, I'll sketch them without going into them in detail. The first stretch of this word, the, the very word dominion, so almost, this is almost like a poetic study of the word. If I, take, if I put that word and plop it onto a page, mm. what is it? what system of connotation does it imply? The first thing is it will move the sphere of, attention from the individual to the cosmos. It just does that because I have to have dominion over something. Mm. I mean, the, it doesn't work unless I'm 
I'm a subject with dominion. Now there's an object. What's my object? What's my object of dominion? The whole of the penal substitution thing is very, it's a very individualistic thing. You know, did Christ die for you and yeah. so on? Whereas dominion uh, will, will just by definition shift the mental landscape of God's interest and our position yeah. to the cosmic order. That's the first thing it does. Um, and what that then would say immediately, the scope of salvation has to be the entire cosmos. Um, not just individuals, that God's interest is not to save a group of individuals. It's the regeneration of cosmic order that he's vitally interested in. Um, and that is a model, the salvation of the cosmos, that you know, when I sit and listen to sermons, uh, it's clear that even well-educated in, in, in Anglican or evangelical circles have no concept of this whatsoever. It's a political salvation we've got, mm. you know, as much as anything else. So that's point number one. Um, and uh, point number two, immediately you would go to, okay, now we've got individuals in the cosmos. What's, what's the nature of our relationship to the cosmos? And it appears that humanity is given a governing relationship with the cosmos we were talking about this uh, at dinner you know it appears we're to some extent creating the cosmos to some yes. extent shaping it and um the the interactive shaping role of humanity in the cosmos seems to be utterly central and that's something ron's helped us with in gospel conversations that we just seem to be creating reality but it, it, it becomes important even at an individual level that i'm shaping my life yeah. i mean i think uh one of the uh Great books which influenced the Renaissance, and I've mentioned this before, is Pico, P-I-C-O, mm. his book on the dignity yeah. of man. Yeah. The oration. Yeah, the oration on the dignity of man, um, mm. written in 1427. A lot of people see that as, having, as a, 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 a unlocking a lot of the creativity in the Renaissance. And his point is that the first object of shaping is ourselves. Yeah. You know? um, so rather than viewing... Us as victims, or just um, you know, part of a machine with cause and effect. Um, we're actually agents. We're actually shaping individually and collectively. And so, what we're looking at now with humanity having dominion over the cosmos is a system. It's no longer an individual. It's a system, and we all live in systems. I mean, the family is a system. Organisations a system. Our relationship with gardens. It's a system. And you can't have one without the other. Yeah. And I, I just trying to remember, I think Pico actually says, uh, he's got words to the effect of, I think he says that the, the greatest gift God gives man, and you, you sort of think, oh, yeah, it's going to end Jesus. Um, and he says that 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 we, we're given dominion over ourselves to craft ourselves into something that can be angelic or brutish. Correct. And that... That I don't know. I, I well, his, his story is his yeah. story is take a baby or two babies. Yeah. And he imagines two babies who are six weeks old. And then imagine an 80-year life. Yeah. And one of them becomes a tyrant and one of them becomes a saint. Yeah. Or you know, a great contributor to society. What he then says is the difference. Successive decisions of design made by that person as they design their lives 
And if we then look at some of the despots in the world today who are wreaking havoc, yeah. wreaking havoc, it all begins with a child that went yeah. this way versus a child that went that way. And so this idea of a our role in the cosmos is incredibly important. Now, Tom Wright, uh, in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, had a very, you know, he had a powerful way of describing this because he was talking about very similar things, which is, so humanity as like a bridge or two-way mirror mediating between, on the one hand, the creation, and on the other hand, God. Mm. And, and it's a two-way mirror, like an angled mirror. So we're taking the creation up to God and taking God down into the creation, and and that's that's this dominion. Role. And there, so there was something else in in the oration where he he I, I don't know I'm, I'm obviously going to paraphrase, but we're supposed to turn ourselves into banquet guests who are going to be <laughs> good conversationalists with Jesus. Bring to a He doesn't quite say it like that, <laughs> but it, it's it's an interesting idea that we're we're actually trying to cut. You know, he he actually talks in terms of we. We are gifts from God to Jesus, and we're supposed to partake in that turning ourselves into something that is worth giving to worth Jesus. Giving to Jesus. Go, wow, so, that's, yeah, it's a big idea. He got idea. poisoned about three years later. I think he was 33 when they killed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's clumsy, isn't it? It's not a not a good idea to write a great book there. No, it's not. It's probably a good thing I haven't written a great book. <laughs> um, we can want to do that now. <laughs> anyway, um, now we begin to move from that, um, and by the way, this idea of the cosmos, which, I mean, I really got to credit a lot of the guys from the region like Rick and Ian, you know, the, the, and John Walton. Yeah. This idea of the cosmos, this political idea, the more you read the Old Testament, the more sense it makes. It's about kingdoms and epic battles. It's not about individual sin. I mean, we're going to do a breakfast with Jesus. I'm moving on to Ezekiel. And one of the, there's a famous chapter in Ezekiel. I don't know if it's famous, but it ought to be, where it's almost like for the first time, Ezekiel says, and by the way, individuals are accountable. I'll yeah, give yeah. You a chapter, but it's like, it's, it's no one new, had said that. New idea. That was a new idea. Yeah. Prior to that, it was political. Sin was political, it was not individual. So our modern idea that, you know, God's individually toting up the sins of the billions of people one by one by one, what a task. Yeah. Um, is is simply not Old Testament, and even even going back to the the Dort thing, yeah, right. It, it's amazing how much people were doing theology in their own image. In that you had John Owen, who in in Scotland, who was involved in crafting the Scottish Constitution. Um, Queen Elizabeth the first has has the the prayer book made, but the chief purpose of the prayer book was, you know, the greatest act of propaganda in history, where overnight. You've got a whole of the Catholic Church uh, clergy, and you bring out this book and say, "Okay, you're going to follow this book, or you're going to get fined if not jailed." And so you've got a you're in a political climate where sovereigns saw themselves as sovereign in that in that sense, and they and theology starts to imitate it. I asked Ian even Pravin when we had lunch with him. I said, "Is there any chance that when the word sovereignty is used?" In or sovereign is used in the Old Testament that they meant anything that we think of in um, in Reformed theology, and he said not a chance. the 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 idea of a sovereign was everyone was accountable to them, but they didn't control everything. But when you started, my my you know hypothesis is when when you're in a in a period of time 
where you've got tension between monarchs and princes and you start legislating and writing constitutions and, and, and trying to really create law around everything, it doesn't surprise you that you end up maybe thinking that's how God relates to us and maybe law is the way he relates to us. Well, that's a two-way mirror thing, isn't yes. it? I mean, depending on what my view of God is, I'll mediate that into the world and, and, vice, versa. and then vice versa. And so, and look, none of us, all of us are, all of us influence power. Parents, we're parents, we're teachers, we're friends. I mean, the exercise of whatever you want to call it, influence over other people is absolutely central. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so the, the idea of once we say that God's sphere of interest is the cosmos, our role in the cosmos and our political governorship is, is, is the main game, that's the game, then the next stretch point, which is a very vital one, is that it appears that the cosmos is a contested political arena mm. with enemies of God at work. That, that seems to be almost the major paradigm yep. of the Old Testament now. And I know David Bentley Hart, but others would argue, and of the New Testament. We're talking yep. principalities and Absolutely. powers. Absolutely. Now, this, um, and, and Tom Wright does emphasise this a lot, so God has enemies. He has enemies. Um, so if we just humanise this a little bit. Um, so that, that, again, that to, to some ears, that's an intolerable thought in that um, God is so much God that, you know, they're, they're, his enemies are nothing. He could deal with them whenever he wanted to, which, which I think is true, but it's, obvious that scripture is talking about these enemies and the the only way these enemies can have any influence is because god has given them a degree of dominion yes and uh i mean how one interprets the fact that god allows enemies is is a big topic which yep. you which you've taken us into but, but but nonetheless there's no question the narrative of scripture absolutely the narrative of scripture accepts that evil is personal yeah and um, and that, so so the, I mean, the great examples will be the book of Daniel, where in the book of Daniel there yeah. are the um, there's the first of all the statues of the with the four layers yeah. that the the rock comes and smashes, and then there's the beasts. There's an epic contest, yeah. epic, which we know is picked up all throughout the New Testament, and it's not to do with individual sin at all. It's to do with in Bukakov's memorable phrase, the question that runs, slithers like a serpent across the face of the earth is who will govern the cosmos? Mm. Now, that's what Daniel's about. Yeah. Um, it's not about, um, you know, individual sin. Did you tell a lie? Did you have sex before marriage? Did you do this, do that? Are you gay? Whatever you want to think. Whatever you think sin is. Yeah. One by one by one, moral codes. It's, it's about a huge arm wrestle between vast powers. Now, I like the way Tom handles. It's actually the way I've thought about it myself, which is I've studied history uh, quite a lot. Um, I mean, English was my main thing, but history was my second thing. And as I look at, even as I look today at Putin and the the devastation there, or if I look at North Korea, I ask myself the question, is it enough to explain this merely mm. by six human beings making some decisions? 
And I've never thought that's a good enough answer. It just feels to me like there's a vast force behind it, with it, cooperating with it. It just feels that way. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's interesting about human, if we look at the human mind, not the religious yeah. mind, the human artistic mind, I mean, what are the great movies? I mean, it's it's Star Wars. It's epic conflict. We're in the middle of a conflict between light and dark. I, th I think if you've worked in corporate life, I guess you'd, you'd, if you work in corporate life, you know all about <laughs> dark horses. That's right. Um, you 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 realise that you realise that you've got to conspire to get good things to happen. And bad things happen naturally, right? You, you don't you don't need a conspiracy for bad things to happen at company. That's just what naturally happens. And you're spending all your life trying to get people to conspire to do good. And and I, the reason I think that is important is when you when you look at bad things that are happening, um, sometimes well we've never seen people work well to do good that well. And how how can you get so many people to work to do bad so well, right? Just organising people is difficult. Well, one of the great, I mean... I, mean, I think that's powers and principalities whispering in people's ears. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's good to get modern language for this, which, um, because I think it helps people understand that um, some supernatural spooky idea of, you know, Satan and that yeah. um, needs to be modernised to some extent. A word that modernises it to me is the word system. Um, one of the most powerful, of the most powerful corporate change experience I went through was in my long, perhaps decade, 15 years working with what was then CRA and is now Rio Tinto, the second biggest mining organisation in the world. And they, back in the 1990s, had a tremendous change program, the most effective change program of any corporate, corporation I've seen. And I was part of it. I influenced them. They influenced me. But part of their theory was a theory of systems. And they had a phrase that's never left my mind, which is systems drive behaviours. You can take a good person and you put them in a bad system and they'll do bad things. And equally, other way around, put a bad person in a good system and they'll do good things. Um, now, I don't want to go into that theory no, no, now, it's... but it's something I've definitely seen yeah, in my yeah. life. Yes. And um, some of the great novels are written about that, um, you know, where people just get swept along the tide of this system they're in that they're not strong enough to, you know, some of the, the great dramas are written on that drama. So the system is some something bigger than all of us. It, a system is, is something bigger than any single person in it, but it seems to be like, I think Paul's picture in Ephesians 2 is the best one. It's like a tide, you know, you are dead in trespasses and sins in which you walked according to the prince of the power of the air, you know, the spirit. This idea of a tide... Yeah. Current. So that's that's the, the the idea that this cosmos and this dominion has got a dark side being it's now a contested space. Now we go to the fall, um, which is the nature of the dominion uh, and the nature of why God doesn't intervene directly. And, uh, this is another big topic, but I... And you've alluded to it. Yeah, yeah, let me yeah, finish, no, no, let me no, finish no. this. Otherwise I'll, <laughs> otherwise, I'll forget it. Um, if God's going to get what he wants, yeah. he has to delegate, putting it in blunt terms. He cannot intervene directly. Um, and we all know this in our lives. If I'm um, a parent or if I'm a coach 
and I'm getting you to do something. I don't want to do it. I want you to do it. And I watch you and you fail and I jump in and I stop you failing. We don't get anywhere. I've actually got to let you go. Otherwise, I don't get what I want because I can jump in. But if I jump in, I've got to jump in all the time. And as, as I think all of us who have worked, certainly if, you, if you've run an organisation, which I've had, this, you confront this, it's actually quite a, uh, it's quite a deep existential thing. I've, I've actually got to step back. And so delegation is the only way I get amplification. Yeah. You know what I mean? Otherwise, it'll just be up to me all the time. So we know in our human lives what it's like to actually have to create, and Donovan talks about this as authority rather than power. Yeah. If I've got power, I intervene directly. If I've got authority, I create a zone in which other people can play. So the creation is better thought of as an authority zone in which we play. Now, God will not, if, if he intervenes, it's the end of the project. The creation's finished. There's no longer a created order. It's, it's, it's all over Red Rover. So he's got to let it go. Um, and but what we did, um, is, so we are vice regents um, in 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 the in the Dominion. We're vice vice regents, and uh, the the we then go to what happened in Genesis three. So with that picture, what happened in Genesis three, and in Genesis three. Uh, we as vice regents invited the takeover mm. of the organisation by dark forces, mm. and you know, I, I, I've, Goldman I've, Sachs, Goldman Sachs, or something. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I tried to. I, I can't quite get an analogy, but here goes. The best, best I can do is if there is a owner who owns an organisation and they're benevolent, but they've totally delegated the running of that organisation to a CEO. And that CEO has access to some preferential shares, whatever. And for various reasons, he lets a hostile foreign party with whom he gets into cahoots and has conversations and they come in and take over the voting rights and they take the company away and they start running the company. Um, the owner can still own it, but they've lost the voting rights. I've actually seen palpable mm. examples of that happening where, um, you know, the the company I created is taken away from me. So something like that is more. So therefore, rather than seeing what happened in Genesis 3 as the fall, I would prefer to call it the takeover. It's a takeover where we, with our delegated powers of dominion and decision-making, had the wrong conversation yep. and invited these hostile forces into the cosmos. Yeah. Um, so... And Tom talks about that extensively and I think very well in this book. So now what we've done is we've invited into the cosmic order dark forces who are very powerful and make a terrible alliance with our creativity and our imago dei yeah. um, to screw up God's project. Um, so we've now got lost dominion, lost dominion. And um, that is now... I guess my best attempt so far to start from Genesis one with what's the problem. So it's lost dominion rather than individual sin and transgression and moral codes. They may have been a subset of that yeah, picture. Symptoms. Uh, yes. So um, the, 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 the effects of that, the effects of that are now the earth is 
there's bad rule on the earth and and we're now um, in, in desperate straits. And, you know, I think theologically the, the impact of sin and entropy on the world. Um, so the only other thing I'd add to that top-down theological picture of lost dominion is um, it does really pave the way for the cross because as a human being, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in the end, as a, a human being has got to change the situation um, and re, re, have another conversation, which we can talk to, talk about in the end. So that's that's the top-down picture. Yeah. Is that all right? Yeah, I, I like that. The, the only change I would make is is it's much more personal than just appointing the CEO because it, it's... Like, Think Roman times where you appoint somebody to you want somebody to be your heir, mm -hmm. right? So it's it's an intensely personal right. thing because it's not just you've you've gone out to the market and found That's the CEO. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, this is this is the person that you want to share this business with and and be able to leave it to them. And they betray. And they and you expect them to treat you as chairman and you know, to give them wise and godly tutelage as they learn how to run the business that you've created. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so there's, I, I would say there's much more relational currency yeah, that you I'd introduce. Yeah, yeah. And then somehow Goldman Sachs came in and gets control, <laughs> convinces them your dad or the guy who's acting as your dad, he doesn't know what he's talking about. We can turn this into a, a ripper of a business for a modest fee of about $500 million. Well... It is vaguely reminiscent of what happened at Fairfax, but you better not go there. Yeah, it, as it was the family, and, yeah. and it was the uh, whatever his name was, Rothwell, wasn't it, from Western Australia? Who came, oh, you know. yeah, gee, that's a while ago. Yeah, it was shocking. It killed. Uh, that, that, I mean, that's they're, they're visceral examples of yeah. strangling, strangling a company by. Anyway, yeah, that's well, where we're up to. Yeah, uh, you, you're you, you had some what you call exegetical, where there are various words that are. Yeah, in play, in penal substitution and in the fall, that you All right. So, for us. So I, I think um, we, we've talked about different approaches to to the whole atonement issue. Yeah. So, and and there is certainly um, intuitively, I can see how the, the theological approach is is probably the um, the starting point for most people in challenging it. But if, if, I think theology sometimes becomes a bit like warfare in that the, the theological approach is like your artillery, but sooner or later you've got to send somebody in and go door to door in street, street fighting <laughs> and open every so you're house. Gonna do, you're going to do street fighting. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, no, I, I just think that's what we've got to do sooner or later. I, yeah. like, I like the top down. I'm, I don't like the detail, but... Um, no, I think we need them both. What, it's that's how you that's how you win the masses over because at some some point in time you've got to go through a series of all right. We, we talked about this. Depending on measure at some point. I didn't get that. Could you try again? Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> what for those listening? That was serious. We don't know serious? how to shut her up. So, is there three atonement metaphors or ten um, metaphors? There's a there's a number of them. Uh, you, you've actually got to go through with with the metaphors and see whether your theory that you've come up with fits better than somebody else's theory, um, and and that that's why penal substitution atonement has, has has done well, partly because it it deals with um, 
atonement metaphors, but partly because because of the the, the political background we're in um, around Dort, we've elevated some of those metaphors to be much higher and, and relegated the others. So there's there's work to do there. But even um, I, I think we've got to re-look at the word righteousness. And I've, I've raised before, Edwin Judge said this, Leon Morris has said this, lots of people have said we, we're probably not using the word righteousness in the same way that the, 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 the Greeks were when, when the Bible writers decided to use it. And, and that, again, is very frightening because um, th this is like having your finger on the Chernobyl button and, and no one wants to really shake the 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 righteousness box and see what what might be in there because righteousness has the same Greek root word as um, justified justification and we we're justified by decayo yeah so we're justified by so the word justification and righteousness in very Greek similar. very similar almost yeah, the same word same word yeah. but and so when you when you've when when your big debate that's defined so your group is justification by faith, yeah, or made righteous by faith, yeah, and and I think Glenn, well, Glenn Davies did his PhD on the first, on on the use of righteousness. I think in the first. So four don't get me in suspense. What are you going to do with the word, Andrew? Well, like <laughs> what? All right. So it, you you'll remember that um, Anselm says the the engine that drives uh, the the atonement is God's honor, and then. And so he said, you know, God is like a feudal landlord, and 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 if his honor's taken, then somebody's got to be punished, just like the end of it. So it's it's just a strange way of doing theology. The the reformers said, no, no, it's not God's honor, but they put in this concept of righteousness, which was a very, very legal idea. Mm -hmm. Um and, and that's what was going on. You had, you know, they're writing constitutions and things like that. So they think, yes, so, righteousness so, is legal. So righteousness becomes some kind of adherence to a penal code, to a code of law. Yeah, yeah. And and again, a I, big examination paper, I pass or fail at. It, yeah, it's a it's a law. It's a law. And and God is subservient to this this law, which never made sense to me. That uh, but but nonetheless, it's so, so the idea of rules. And codes, uh, that's intrinsic. It's, it's almost like it's a big legislative code. Yep. And people say, because it reflects God's character. And you think, man, you've you've limited, you've moved God from being love to God being law. You know, if it, the, the, the primary thing about God is righteousness and law, as opposed to, well, what if what if there's a way of looking at righteousness that is love? Because we, we know the word is used before Christians turn up from it. So there's something about righteousness. And... I think I pointed out last time, Edwin Judge said it, it, it's got to do with the cosmos being in the right place. Harmony. Harmony, right? So cosmos is like that beautiful... Well, cosmos means elegance and beauty. Yeah, and and they had a belief that the cosmos worked in a way that was a beautiful... I wouldn't say mechanism, but they thought it was beautiful in how it worked. And if you did something, if you, if you were too good or too bad... You could throw the cosmos out of a line. So, so this aligns with John Walton's concept of yeah. order, yeah. order being. And you can almost now begin to say, oh, well, a better meaning for righteousness would be beauty. Which you, which one, once you, you say that and you realise the New Testament will talk about God's righteousness, which you think, you know, if, if there's only one righteousness, you don't have to say that. You, you, you say God's righteousness when you're trying to say there's something different, a 
about God's righteousness. And yeah, I, I think the righteousness that humans tend to want is, you know, we'll talk about we want justice, but what we, we want somebody to be punished. Yeah. It's it's punitive. It's, yeah, it's revenge. Yeah. And so that that feels like theology in our own image. And you you look at the parables about lost son and so forth, and you realize God is not like us. He's he's not like the nations. He is other than yeah, the nations. Exactly. He's radically different. He's holy. Uh, and and what 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 if he's talking in terms of his justice doesn't doesn't require somebody being killed? That's that's an interesting one because we, we, not saying that Jesus wasn't killed, but what uh, if his justice doesn't require that? What is it that would require that? So that's that's a really powerful excursion into that word. And I think the the part that I hadn't heard you say before tonight, but I think is. Uh, helps us break the paradigm because I think the word righteous for all of us has strong legalistic yeah. connotations. The idea of righteousness is beauty and yeah. harmony um, and that the cosmos, going going back now to the idea of the cosmos being God's sphere, sphere of uh, operations and interest is is to be ordered and beautiful. And, and I think it, um, to your point, you've mentioned Edwin a few times, and, and I'm pretty sure, unfortunately, I'm now relying only on memory and uh, and, um, and a conversation I had with Edwin where and this was not recorded. It was a, um, a private conversation where he told me he'd seen the, that word or, a, a you know, a cognate of that oh, word yeah, yeah. across a marketplace. Yeah. Describe the marketplace, a Greek pagan marketplace. Um, being righteous, meaning that in this marketplace, there's order, you know, you can trust the prices, uh, you can trust the supply and the quality, and that that if, 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 if the marketplace was not righteousness, we couldn't participate in yep. it. Um, and it was almost like um, it was assuming there was in the best, there was order in that that we can yeah. now all trust in to play our game. Yeah, and, and not necessarily because there's some punitive forces out there who are going to drive you to it. It, it it was an invitation to freedom and uh initiative and to your word trust of relationships uh within that so uh, i thought that was a really um thought-provoking and, and i would still want to say I, I think god's righteousness is going to probably be richer than the way the greeks used it yeah but i, I and i think this is the point leon morris points out it's 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 straight like 50 in 1955 it it's almost impossible that the way we're using righteousness since the reformation is what was intended by the writers of the text now that that is like theologically that's like having your finger on the chernobyl button because i like pushing well then but then it's just an issue that you you've got to you've got to blow things up andrew well, maybe not you have to blow things up in order to remake but i think that's i think you can do that if if you, our intuition tells us that that if we do that, it'll come back better than it is. Yeah. Where a lot of people's intuition is, if I lose that, I've got nothing. You know, exactly. and and so it's it's really quite frightening for most people to theologically head towards the Chernobyl button. <laughs> um, you know, but yeah, I'm just while we're on the Chernobyl button, yeah. I find <laughs> I find it, it I find it so intriguing. I mean, I used to tell my children, look, just to console yourself in life, understand this, that the most essential quality of human beings is hypocrisy. 
you and others. Once you get that, you'll live a happier life. Yeah. And, you know, you get today reformed people who will not want to press the Chernobyl. Well, guess what Luther did? Yeah. You want to talk about Chernobyl buttons. Absolutely. You, your opinion, your hopes of a guy blew up the... Everything. Uh, he blew up everything. Yes, uh, far more than you know if you read the stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, well, so pressing the Chernobyl button's important sometimes. No, and uh, yeah, no, it's absolutely. It's, so uh, again, there, there was a period of time about two hundred years ago where women in labour were twenty times as likely to die if a doctor delivered the baby compared with a midwife. 20 times. And they, they believed in miasma, that, that this foul-smelling air is the way sickness moved around. Now, while everyone had that view, um, they didn't ask the right questions about why is it that midwives have a 20 times, not 20% greater, 20 times success rate or, or less mm -hmm. death rate. And it wasn't until they, somebody actually said, and they were much maligned, right? And on that, I, I keep a list of people who've won Nobel Prizes and great things who've been maligned and how many years it took before they got accepted. But this, the guy who started saying, hey, if we just wash our hands between touching cadavers and other patients, we'll probably kill <laughs> less women. It's something that we take really obvious now. Mm -hmm. um, these doctors, you know, top of the field, doctors are dangerous. They had no idea because they weren't able to challenge yeah. the word that yeah. came down from above. So it's okay to press the chin up. You've got to do it. Now, that's one word. Uh, I want you to talk about propitiation, which is uh, stereon yeah. in yeah. Greek. Yeah. All right. So uh, I, I remember people talking about the, the NRSV when it was translated. So that must have been the 50s, I assume. And C.H. Dodd had been very influential uh, and had tried, I don't think he succeeded. There was a word that was translated propitiation, which, which is the idea of turning away anger, which we, we talked about Appeasing last Appeasing the gods. Yeah, that's yeah, right. It's a pagan, a word used by pagans to appease the yeah. gods, yeah. And well, I think it's used in, John, in John's epistles. Oh, yeah, and... We should have done more preparation. We should have done on that one. Um, the, but, the, but the interesting bit was what Edwin said. Um, and often it got translated as ex expiation, which meant that wrath was dealt with in some way, but it wasn't actually about the wrath. Mm. So, and, and that's what propitiation. And, and now if you look at the NRSV, which was you know, 30 years old, um, I think they just said sacrifice of atonement. They just tried to stay away from it. The problem with hilasterion, the, the word that we're playing with, I think it turns up twice in the Bible. And I don't think they actually had any occurrences in the Greek world. Um, so it's a very hard word to translate. It's a hard word to translate, and so just so just so that people know, because um, John Walton explained this to me, um, there's no dictionary when you're doing translation. No. It's more like a it's more like a crossword puzzle, yeah, and the way right. they work out the meaning of a word is Complex. they just find well they find all the other meanings. So if a word is used twenty other times. We get a pretty good idea of what it could mean because we sort of average it out yeah, across yeah. those two. If a word's used once or twice, it's really tricky because there's nothing to compare it to, which is what you're saying. Yeah. So what what you try to do is work out what the, the context is yeah. around it. But you, I'll, I'll use another illustration. But you'll 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 end up inserting your your theology in in that way. Now the, the interesting thing is I have not tracked this down. Edwin sort of whispered to me again, wish I'd recorded everything he said, that a fragment had been identified that had this word in it, 
and it, it was Nero or Tiberius, somebody had, an emperor had been given a gift, a thank you gift for visiting their city. And all of a sudden that changes your whole view of the word. So it, the word was a thank you gift. Well, yeah, well, the the hillsterian. The hillsterian was just a thank you gift. There, the was, propitiation there was no was anger. A thank you gift. Yeah, yeah. And he could come and visit it. He'd gone, he gave them, and and so it, it just. Now, I'm not saying that that the, the you you want to say there's no sacrifice or atonement or any, or no anger in in scripture. It's just there there are a few words there which we we backfill with our theology, which we've got to. Um, We've got to be a little bit careful yeah, and not, yeah. not do oh, that. Yeah. Now, the uh, one of the illustrations I, I don't think I've used is: um, Have we talked about Alistair, Alistair McIntyre, who wrote the 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 After Virtue? We haven't. All right. He he's got this he's got this little passage that is sort of a throwaway line about how language works, and he, he tells the story. Uh, the reason I'm telling you this is. Is I, th this is how we often do theology, right? The mind is a rumor factory. We're given some utterances in scripture. And when there are missing bits, our rumor factory mind starts filling in the bits. And that's why we've got to do theology in community to say, hey, that's rubbish. That doesn't work. Anyway, the illustration that he uses is he said he was he was studying in New York, I think. Uh, no, studying in, in a library in Washington. It was midwinter. It was dark. It was raining. And at the end of the day, he goes to a bus shelter, dark, raining, and somebody comes out and says, Histronicus, Histronicus, Histronicus is the Latin name for the wild duck, right? So there's your utterance. And he said, immediately, your mind's got to do something with that because it, do it, it doesn't make sense without a context. And so your mind makes up the context. He said, okay, the first thing is you think this guy's been to a psychiatrist or something. He's obviously mad. Um, the next thing that popped up in his mind, he said, no, 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 this is Washington. That could be the recognition code for a spy. Uh, and then the smarter part of his brain goes, maybe it's dark. And somebody's asked him that question earlier in the day in a library because he's come out of the same library. And maybe that it, it's just um, a, a mistake. And the, the important thing about that, going back to belief shapes, shapes behaviour, um, that the same utterance can get three different responses. If, you, if you're convinced that he's mad, you'll probably withdraw. If you think he's a spy, you might turn into a bit of a hero and try to do a citizen's arrest and you go forward. But when you realise, no, it's probably just an accident, you stand down. Now, we, we, we've got to concede, I think, that we do, we've got text and there are gaps that, that we, we have that we fill up with, with rumours. And until we're honest about some of our theology is is more in the category of rumour than text. Uh, we, we won't un, un, ask those necessary questions. Yeah, so if you've got a penal model, yeah. which is kind of like saying the guy's mad, the guy's mad, the guy's mad, yeah. you're going to start interpreting everything and fitting it into that model. Yep. And you could take a word like propitiation, which could mean something, as you've said, more like, say, thank you offering. Than, yeah. And... and um, uh, the um, well, I had an example that's uh, slightly more sinister than that, mm -hmm. um, which is the dear old NIV. Um, yeah, the old NIV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the NIV. Oh, okay. Still current one. Still current one. There. This is this is just an example, I think, of another issue, which is not just taking a word and translating in a certain way, but inserting a word in there that's not yeah. there. Yep. 
So uh, uh, this came about simply because we were doing a Bible study in Romans 8 in our church. Uh, they translate Romans 8 like this. What the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. That's uh, a bad phrase. We know that. That's the old That's, that's yeah. the old one. Uh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. That's their translation, in which case you would say to yourself, oh, that's interesting. There it is, a sin offering. So Christ is a sin offering, and immediately we're back in the Levitical system and so on. And you would say, well, if I went and looked at the Greek, mm -hmm. I would find a noun for sin offering. If you looked at what David Bentley Hart translates it as, it is the thing that is impossible for the law, in which it was weak on account of the flesh, that's pretty much the same. God having sent, except flesh for sinful nature, God having sent his own son in a semblance of the flesh of sin, also as regards sin, condemns sin in the flesh. So there's no word there, sin offering. No. You go to the ESV, very similar to David. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and, and thus he condemns sin in the flesh. So, the, I mean... I've looked at the I've looked at the Greek text. There is no sin offering there, so they've put a paraphrase in and stuck in this word sin offering, which now probably millions of people are reading, assuming there's mm. there's a sin offering, and there is no such word. And even the sinful nature, I think it, it's interesting. I don't know about to say this. It's it's a fascinating read going through the preface of the 2011. NIV. Yeah, I know. They yeah, because say they're sorry. Because they say they're sorry for a whole lot of things like the, the phrase sinful nature is, is terrible. Is, is, I is had terrible. it. Yeah, exactly. And, and so they're, they're actually quite you know, repentant of, of the you know, what is it, 1984 version or something. Or, or not the whole thing. But well, I was at the, like the same Bible study I was at the other night. I actually took them off uh, this sweet lady. She's a doctor. It's a lovely, wonderful lover of God, and she's beautifully reading it. And I just said, look, I won't mention her name. Um, it's not sinful nature, it's flesh. Mm. Uh, I and said, Jesus had and flesh. I said, it's the, it's the uh, NIV. Oh, she said, you're telling me the NIV is wrong? Yes, I'm telling you the NIV is wrong. Should I burn it? Like, it probably should. <laughs> At the very least, get another translation so you can compare it. Well, well, um, it's, it's a shocker. And I won't tell you what David Bentley Hart told me about it because it's not, he'd probably, he probably wouldn't mind, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> anyway, that's a different thing. That's what you're talking about. We know the word propitiation, uh, hilasterion, is there, and yeah. how I interpret it is one thing. The other thing, though, is when words are interpolated as a paraphrase to pat out yeah. a meaning, and that's that's sinister. Yeah, and um, because I'm, part of the translator's fear is when there's ambiguity and vagueness in the text, is people will make up. Rumors. So instead of them making up a rumor, I'll make up a rumor. Yeah. Well, the worst case I know of, which is just, it is so sad, it's beyond belief, is 1 Thessalonians. I think it's 1 Thessalonians, it's where it talks about destruction. And some people were translating it into a Papuan dialect. And in the Papuan dialect, the word destruction, once they translated it into the Papuan dialect, sounded something like annihilation. And this person, and I, they wrote this out on, on the missionary newsletter, thought, oh, dear me, they'll think that um, there's just going to be annihilation. We better get it right. And they inserted a destruction, a full sentence on eternal conscious torment. 
a full sentence of internal conscious torment. That's not the end of the story. The two young, they were doing cross-translation, so they had a couple of young Papuan mm -hmm. ladies who read it and were shocked. They were shocked by eternal conscious torment, and they said, "Is this? does this mean that our parents and relatives before the missionaries are in eternal torment? Mm -hmm. And the missionary said, yes, we assured them they were in hell, and they were sobered and saddened and shocked. Praise God. Um, not exaggerate. So that's dark. Yeah, it is dark. That's dark. Anyway, that's moving away from the darkness um, to one or two other words, I, and then we'll finish off. Yeah. You said some very good things to me on adoption. Yeah. Um, as better thought of as disinherited. Just could you repeat? That? Yeah, yeah. So, all right. Um, you know, when when we start doing the exegetical things, we'll have to go and get go through every word of righteousness and, and see whether the theory works, a different theory. And even at some level, looking at the metaphors and trying to work out what are the metaphors really about. And I, I picked this up um, in, in J.I. Packer's Knowing God uh, as a teenager. Um, he About two-thirds of the way through, he, he has this rant about why is nobody doing any PhDs on adoption? Because he, he argues, it's, it's great little read about how important adoption is and how adoption is is that is that word that we we usually translate. Um, we, we'll talk about um, reconciliation, and reconciliation sort of implies there's there's a bit of a relationship that goes wrong and you fix it up, which is is slightly different to you were disinherited and you're being adopted and. This goes back to the, the whole question of um, what, what was Christ's death really, really paying for? Was it paying for my sins or was it paying for Adam's sin? Right? Were we caught, yeah, corporately caught up in, in that or is it yeah, a, a very individualistic thing? So once, once you realise that one of those metaphors is about adoption and you've got a number of metaphors, why are we concentrating so much on the exchange a penal one which we might be overstating um well it's actually hard if you line up the, the metaphors it's hard to find a metaphor that's about penalty yes it's, it, it's, it's very hard it's not there okay, so <laughs> that's not but, one of the that's not one of the atonement metaphors look i think uh time's gone on we, yep. we should uh we should wrap up um i just think in summary just because we've taken a wander through a lot of territory the big words, dominion. Yep. Um, framing the issue as lost dominion. Um, how that now starts to imply cosmic significance, and then relooking at some of the traditional um, penal substi uh, substitutionary atonement words through that lens. Yep. Um, and even that one, adoption, inheritance, disinheritance, makes a lot more sense if I've lost office. Um, and um, the last point you made about Jesus being a substitute for Adam, we'll, we'll come to that one yeah, next week because I think that's really what that begins to do. I mean, what we've been doing is painting a picture of a new picture of the quote unquote fall mm. as takeover, lost dominion, which now begins to, I think, having framed it that way, we're now much better situated to move now to Calvary, now to what happened with the restitution. Um, in Christ, the very meaning of redemption can now get yeah. amplified 
as regaining dominion yeah. on behalf of humanity or something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. cool. All right. Well, um, we should talk about what the next one's going to be. The next one will be you're going to give us a speaking of things that need to be rethought. Genesis 22. Genesis 22. And the almost sacrifice of Isaac. Yeah, which is often taken as almost the Old Testament's proof text for penal substitution. Yeah. And, okay. and don't, has, don't say what you're going to talk yeah. about. Yeah. Keep in suspense. But we, we've got a paper that we'll try to circulate. Correct. So you read the paper. And then I'll read it again next time. We'll probably do this around the 2nd of June. And then we'll have a question time around it. So it'll be pretty straightforward. But it's it's quite a dense little paper, so it'd be good to read it before. We'll, we'll send that out with the invitation. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you very much.